0: Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7 of chapter 2 This is the first of seven letters which Jesus sent to the seven churches in Asia Minor. This one is written to the church at Ephesus. You may remember that Paul was the one with his traveling companions who planted the church there. He would not have taken responsibility for its beginning. He would give that to Jesus. Jesus is the one who establishes his church but it was a church also who had as its pastor none other than the Apostle John. This church had Paul as its founding pastor and John the Apostle as the pastor late in his pastoral ministry and for many years according to church history. Let's look at verse one of Revelation chapter two. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot endure evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you, and will remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. If we had a clear picture of martyrdom in the history of the church, we would be amazed and appalled at the same time. A couple by the name of Hefley wrote a book, late last century entitled The Blood of the Martyrs. It chronicles many of those who died for their faith, dating from 1900 going forward. And what is amazing is their finding indicated that there were more people, over a million Christians were martyred in the 1900s. Can you imagine? Over a million were killed for their faith. We have many heroes who are unnamed in the history of our church. We'll have to wait until we stand before the judgment seat of Christ to know who they were, actually. But in the Bible, we have many who stood tall, do we not? None stood taller, in my estimation, which means very little, to that of Elijah. Elijah was a man... We don't know a lot about his origin. We know he was a Tishbite, whatever that means. We know he was a man who was told by the Lord to deliver a message of judgment. And then, based on that message, he should hide himself because he would be public enemy number one to the king of Israel, Ahab. And that was something which came true. He lived alone in solitary confinement, as it were, in the wilderness and he was fed daily by ravens, would bring him food for three years. And then the next four years of this great drought that he predicted, the result was that he still had to go around in secrecy. When you read his story, it's found in 1 Kings 17-19. The highlight of his life, actually, was when he called the bluff of the worshipers of Baal. Baal means, or Baal, if you please, means Lord in the Canaanite languages. And that group of people who followed the false god had influenced Israel. The reason being is that Ahab, the king of Israel, had married a woman by the name of Jezebel. She had no roots whatsoever in the people of Israel. But she influenced her husband incredibly and therefore got access to influence the whole nation to the point that Elijah actually thought he was the only person in all of the nation of Israel who had yet to bow his knee or her knee in worship of the false god of Baal or Baal. So he challenged the prophets of Baal. There were 400 Of those prophets. He challenged them to a face-off on a mountain, Mount Carmel or Carmel, and he challenged them to go there because it was a place where they actually did their worship in sacrificing over and over and over again. He faced off with them, challenged them to call on their God. Their God could not answer. He said, the God who answers by fire, that is the true God, and he really mock them as they were trying half-day, dancing around, cutting themselves, and nothing, no response coming from their God because he was no God at all. In the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about idol worship. Idol worship was regularly experienced in all these cities, in the city of Ephesus and Corinth, and he said that behind those idols, those false gods, were demons. Certainly, we see demonic influence on Mount Carmel when these Baal prophets were doing their thing in an attempt to get their god to answer by fire. And you know the rest of the story. I won't go into the details, but the long and short of it is that God did answer by fire. And then this man, Elijah... He took the lives of all the 400 Baal prophets. He was a hero and remains a hero in terms of the kind of person God really uses in a mighty way. Now, it was not long after that, when he came down off the mountain, that he met his match, in the sense that he met Jezebel. Not face to face, I'm sure he had had some personal contact with her. But in this particular situation, she simply sent a messenger to tell him, I'm going to have you killed in effect. And so what he did, he beelined into the desert, into the wilderness to hide. He finds himself on a mountain, Mount Horeb. This was the holy mountain of God. He was in a cave hiding out. And God spoke to him and said, what are you doing hiding in the cave? He said, I'm going to show myself to you. And he said, I'm going to show myself to you and I'm going to speak to you in a way that's very important for you to understand because it's the primary way that I communicate. And so he waited in the cave. And first of all, he heard this incredible wind And this was a mighty wind. I have never heard of a wind, I'm sure it has happened, that blew so hard it cracked rock on the mountain. But the scripture says the voice of the Lord was not in the mountain, in that earthquake. Then the wind, rather. And then there came an earthquake. No communication in the earthquake, as mighty as it was. And then fire, and God was not in the fire. And let me pause just a moment and make mention of this. Remember that wind and fire are symbols of the Holy Spirit, not just in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. Wind and fire at Pentecost, for instance. We've been talking about the Holy Spirit, and today we're continuing to consider that. And then the Bible says when everything was quiet, this man, Elijah, heard a still, small voice, And actually, the words translated still small really are trying to capture the one word that is translated by those two English words, and this is a good interpretation. It was a crushed voice. It was a very thin voice. You had to really want to hear it to hear it. I thought about Jesus when Jesus heard God speak to him. I think it's in the 10th chapter of John's Gospel. And he heard it. And some of the others around him heard it too. But the large majority said it thundered. They couldn't understand it because they didn't have ears to hear what the Spirit was saying. This passage of Scripture that we just read, let's look at verse 7 one more time. Because this is the theme, I believe, of this passage of Scripture. Verse 7, verse first part of it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Church, this church, we need to ask the Lord to give us ears to hear. We need to say, Spirit, speak. We sang that song. And then this last song, I don't know the title of it, but you know the refrain was, Lord, bless me, let me know your heart. Jesus bears his heart to this church in Ephesus as he does the other six churches. And he he does bear his heart to us down the corridors of time because this is a living word that we're reading and there's a message here for us today. Spirit speak is what we would want to say to the Lord today. And the Spirit did speak, first of all, to the pastor in the church. Look at verse one. To the angel of the church in Ephesus Right Now, I've never thought of myself as an angel. And I'm no angel for sure in the sense of being perfect. But the word angel, many of you know, literally the word angel in the original language of the New Testament is the word messenger. That's the most basic meaning of angel. And so that would be the pastor the teaching pastor of the church, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. The seven stars would be the seven pastors, most scholars are agreed, and the seven golden lampstands would be the life of Christ in those churches. So this is a message to the pastor. The pastor needs to hear this lesson because he's the one who has the ear of the people. And God speaks through people who have been given a teaching gift, a speaking gift, to lead the church and help them to be better equipped to do what God has called them to be. He is the overseer of the church as well, an elder in the church. But then the bulk of this message is to the people. And Jesus begins in his kindness, with a commendation. Look at what constitutes the commendation here. There's more than one aspect of it. In verse 1, he begins by commending the good works that this church is doing. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance. Let's pause here just a moment and think about that. The word perseverance is a word which carries with it the idea of being able to stand up under circumstantial situations that are crushing to most people. And they will crush us unless we call upon the Lord to give us the strength. But he uses this term again in verse 3. Look at it. You have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. This church was a church that knew what it was like to carry out the method of doing that which is good. Remember what God had written to them, the Spirit of God had spoken to them years before through Paul's letter. And Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God prepared in advance for you to do. That's true of us too. He has created us again First, we were born into this world, physically, and then if we know Christ, we were born spiritually. We're new creatures in Christ, new creations, and He's given us the capacity to do those good works which will bring honor and glory to Him, the purpose for which all men have been created. He commended their good works. These people knew that faith without works is dead, and I hope you do too. We are always to take the truth and apply it as the Lord reveals that to us. But Jesus does not only commend this church for their good works and their hard work, as it were. Look what he goes on to say, picking up again in the middle of verse 2 You cannot endure evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And then if you go down to verse 6, he said, Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The reason I asked that Acts 20 be read was because Paul, remember the founding pastor, on his way to what he thought would be his death to stand trial eventually before Nero, the emperor, he met these elders, the leaders of the church, on the beach at a place called Miletus, which was about 40 miles from Ephesus. Ephesus, by the way, was the queen city of all of what we now know as Turkey, Asia Minor. It was a great center for commerce. It was a place that was highly cultured. It had a stadium that would seat 50,000 people. That's hard to believe but the ruins are there to prove it today. It was a place that was a desirable place to live. And so here, this man meets the elders in that place, Miletus, on the coast, in the Mediterranean, on his way to Jerusalem. And he tells them what we read. Remember what he told them? Basically, he says, Beware of false teachers. They are like ravenous wolves, and they're going to come from in, within your church, not from the outside. They're already there. Satan has wormed his way into that fellowship through them, and they are going to oppose the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself says in the Sermon on the Mount, Beware of false prophets. You will know them by their fruit. You will know by the way they act, behave, behave, They will be immoral. They will be people who use you to get their way. They'll milk you for all your worth. Be on guard against false teachers. And this church had taken that to heart. To their credit, years had passed, maybe 30 years since that conversation took place, maybe longer. But nevertheless, they were diligent and vigilant in protecting the church. And John himself was such a man, and he had carried forward the ball that Paul had thrown their way on the coast because we know every time they would get together as a church under his leadership, he would remind them of the importance of keeping stability in the church especially as it related to good doctrine and good practice. We'll see about that in just a moment. So Jesus commends this church for its good works and commends the church for its good doctrine. However, there is a condemnation he issues to this church too. He's very stern in his warning. Look what he says in verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love." Now that is pretty easy to figure out. Who was their first love? Jesus, right? Can you imagine having left Jesus, their first love? They got so wrapped up in doing the will of God and they got so wrapped up in protecting the Word of God that they had subordinated Jesus to both. The quality that we cannot do without and whereby good works and good doctrine are useless is the quality of loving Jesus, putting him first in our lives. If you know Christ, do you remember when you first received Christ? Can you remember what you experienced? Do you recall, I know I recall it even though I was a child, I remembered how my heart was so warmed when I trusted Christ. And I wanted to tell people about Him. I went to church the Sunday after I had received Christ, I mean, to school the Sunday after I had received Christ. And when I got there, the first thing I did, I made a beeline to Mrs. Tedder, my second grade teacher, and I told her I had received Christ the day before. And I don't know, she patted me on the head probably said, that's good, Mike. I don't know if she was a Christian or not. But I couldn't keep it to myself. I was unashamed. And my life had a change in direction because I had a testimony to share and I wanted to share it even as a little boy. I wanted to share Christ with an adult or anybody else who would listen. And that's what kind of love we have. If you have received Christ as your Lord, you know... You had to tell somebody about it. You wanted to tell somebody about it. But over the years, there's a tendency for we who grow into adulthood or move from the point of salvation in adulthood going forward, other things crowd out that kind of affection for Jesus. Don't they? The world encroaches upon our love relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. In addition, to loving Jesus. That is the main idea here. But remember what Jesus says, "If you love me, you will keep my commandments." Now, on the surface of things, and that verse is oftentimes lifted out of John 14, it's the 15th verse, and it's used to say, "If we really love the Lord, we're going to, what? do whatever He says. I'm not opposed to that. I know that's the truth. But if you look at it in the context over and over again, Jesus defines what the primary commandment is, and that is to love one another as he has loved us. He comes and dwells us. We love him as the one who resides and presides over our lives. But he's not satisfied with that. He wants us to love each other. The way he loved. Have you stopped to think about the way Jesus Christ has loved you lately? I performed a reenactment of the 50th wedding yesterday for Hector and Susan Almeida. They're here this morning. It was a beautiful moment. And we looked at what the responsibility of a husband is to a wife to love your wife as Christ loved the church and laid down his life for the church. I'm telling you, I'm convicted every time I think about that verse. I think, how in the world, Lord, can I love my wife the way you love us as your church? Think about the way he loved us. He came out of heaven where he was king and treated with all respect to a world according to the book of John, John chapter 1. You remember what it says? Jesus was the true light who came into the world and he enlightened every man. But the problem was that he was rejected by those whom he came to save and included in those were even people in his own family. But he still loved them. He loved the apostles when they all abandoned Him on the time that He was arrested to be taken to be crucified. His love, He laid down His life in the awfulness of crucifixion for us. But so many other ways we don't have time. You know what the Bible teaches about the way in which Jesus loved people. That's the way we are to love each other. And as I mentioned yesterday in the wedding message I said, this is impossible, man. This is an impossible thing that we were given to do if it were not for the fact that the Holy Spirit of God lives in us. Holy Spirit lives in you. If you know Jesus, Holy Spirit lives in you. We've talked recently about how we can grieve the Holy Spirit. We've talked also about how we can put out the Spirit's fire, quench the Spirit by doing certain things or not doing certain things But here we see the Spirit of God indwells us. He lives in us. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 5 that the love of God has been poured out. Think about that image. Poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And that pouring out of that love is not something for us to keep to ourselves. We were made in Christ for the purpose of glorifying Him by loving Him, but also loving one another. It's said by those who should know, who had access to records when John was the uh, leader, the chief elder, pastor in this church in Ephesus for many years, that he never concluded a, meet, a meeting with any of the people by, but by saying the same thing. Little children love one another. Do you know that's the Lord's heart for us? Love one another. Learn to lay down your life for others. Lay it down for Christ because in those people who know Jesus dwells the Lord Jesus Christ. We are apt to Just like these Ephesian believers, we are apt to get lost in our work for the Lord and in our defense of the Word of God, and we're right to do both. Getting a little static there. But nevertheless, we need to be men and women who take this to heart and listen to what the Lord says. He calls us, In this passage of Scripture, in verse 5, look at it. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. They had been doing good deeds, but they weren't doing them the way they had done them at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Those are strong words, aren't they? What's he saying? I'm going to close shop here in this church. I mean, there are a lot of churches today in the world which have people coming, but there's no life because the Lord has taken the lampstand away because they have no longer seen Jesus Christ as the only way to God. And they have s- substituted other gods, maybe not kicked Jesus completely out, but they become pantheistic in a lot of ways, loving other gods rather than loving the Lord, or loving the world rather than love our Lord. So we need to see what this says to us. I think the NIV says, remember the height from which you have fallen. Now let's stop here just a moment. Have any of you found yourselves, as we've talked about this this morning, at a place of lesser devotion to Jesus than when you first began? Only you and the Lord know that. We all have those moments when we wax and wane in our walk with the Lord. But this is for you today. It was for me as I've thought about this and the Holy Spirit's been speaking to my heart about my need for deeper commitment and renewal of my love for Jesus, not for the things of Jesus but for Jesus and consequently my love for you and others in the body of Christ. Remember. I thought about this. I thought it would be a good exercise for me to think about the reasons that one might fall. And this is not an exhaustive list. It may be exhausting to you to listen to it, but it's not exhaustive, okay? First thing that comes to my mind is pride. Some people who do mountaineering or mountain climbing or going to heights, remember, Elijah was on a height, wasn't he? He had reached the pinnacle of his purpose as far as he was concerned, and he was used mightily of God, but then he took his eyes off the Lord, and he got his eyes on somebody else, and the result was, he ended up in the pits. It's easy to get there, is it? But pride is that which really we must guard against. I was thinking back, it just came to my mind this morning. Actually, I did not share this last night with the congregation, but it popped into my mind. In 1978, Carl Wallenda. Remember the wonderful Wallendas? He came with his family from Germany as a teenager in 1920 to the United States. For 58 years he said, the only time I feel alive is when I'm on the high wire. He was recorded some years before he fell to his death in Puerto Rico in 1978. He was recorded as he walked across a gorge in northern Georgia, several hundred feet above that base of that gorge. He would have fallen and would have died. And he was talking as he walked along. He said, the, the wind is coming up. The wind is coming up. And that was heard by people all over the country who were viewing it on TV. And then he said this. He said, but God is with me. God is with me. God is with me. Then a few years later, at the age of 73, he's walking across this high wire. And He fell to his death. Now this wasn't the first time he had fallen. Just a few years before, he had led the Walendas to build an act with, which was a seven person pyramid and as they were walking across, it did not remain stable and they all seven fell to the floor. No net underneath, they all fell. Two of his relatives died in the fall. His brother I mean his son rather, was paralyzed for life and he himself suffered a broken pelvis and other associated injuries. He should have known better really to do it the first time, but this, this other time after that. But his pride got in the way probably and that can happen to us too. We get off to a good start Uzziah, the king of Judah, got off to a great start and said, as long as he sought the Lord, he was fine. He was blessed. But then the Bible says he later became strong, and the result was he quit seeking the Lord. This is an example out of Scripture for that pride. Another thing that gets in our way is fatigue. Do you ever get tired of being a Christian? I can tell by the chuckle some of you do. And it's not really being tired of being a, a son of God or a daughter of God or being that, one, that person that Jesus loves, but you get tired of it. It's just so much to do, right? And we suffer from fatigue sometimes. Well, that in itself indicates that we really don't understand what Jesus says when he says, if any of you is weary or heavy laden, come to me and take my yoke upon you. In other words, yoke up with me, team up with me, and draw your energy from me. That's what it really means. And you take my yoke and learn from me, and you will have peace in your heart. But nevertheless, this is work that wears you out, even when you're taking the yoke of Christ on you sometimes. Jesus sent his apostles out, in pairs as he typically did they came back and they were ganged by people and they were so ganged by people who were needing ministering to the result was that these apostles couldn't even find time to eat and rest and so jesus says i want you guys to come away for a while and go to a lonely place or." you are going to burn out. I'm putting my own interpretation to that last part. You're going to burn out. We need to be people who understand that fatigue is part of following the Lord, and we need to know what to do with it. We need to get away for a while. Not permanently. That's what burnout leads to, but get ahead of the curve before it gets to that point and spend time alone. We have this everyday opportunity to be alone with the Lord but sometimes we need a little longer break in terms of rest. Always realizing the rest is designed so that we can get back in the work of the Lord. That's to be understood. Never a permanent kind of departure. A third reason is sometimes we are pushed off the mountain. Mountaineers are pushed off. I don't imagine... Too many of them are, but they're probably stories of people who were pushed off for whatever reason. Some fell to their death, others injured, discouraged in the spiritual life. And somebody in the church may have pushed you off, bullied you off. And what you need to understand is the Lord is with you in those times, and He picks you up. And don't let that determine who you are and how you go not only push, some people are rushed off you can't get in a hurry when you're climbing a mountain the severity of the incline demands slowing down all the more and not getting too far ahead, the truth is Christians sometimes especially in their years, early years of walking with Christ, they don't want to walk with Christ they want to run with Christ you know And we need to understand it's a walk. The Christian life is never described as uh, more than a walk. We are to run the race that's marked out before us. I know that, but the word of preference for the Holy Spirit, it's a walk. It's a walk. We keep walking after the Lord. And He will sustain us. Just remember that as you go forward. And don't get too rushed Make sure you're serving the Lord now where you are in an assignment He wants you to fulfill. And then also give equal time, if not more time, to hearing from Him and learning and growing in your relationship to Him. Bad weather creates a problem sometimes too, doesn't it? That's why I ask that we read from Psalm 107 about this group of sailors who go to sea and they were enchanted by the sea, and they encountered a storm which God himself brought up. It was God's purpose to get their attention, to teach them that they had to depend on him and not on themselves. They were in the area of their expertise. They made their living on the sea. This happens so often. How the Lord will correct you and me as his children in the very area that we are best at. And we need to understand that. It can even be in a family where you are excellent in your family and then something happens to the family member. And it has a way of redirecting your thoughts and the way you live. And what did they do? They cried out to the Lord. If you read the whole 107th Psalm, there are four sets of people, all of whom experienced the same kind of event that taught them that the trouble in our lives is designed to strip us of self-reliance and to force us to God-reliance. And this is why a lot of people drop out and don't continue to live in a relationship with Christ just like the way they began it. So understand that when trouble comes, we need to take heed to what Jesus says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about, Life can be compared to two kind of men. A man who is a wise man, a man who is a foolish man. The wise man builds his house on a rock. And the building of the house is representative of his life. He builds his life on the rock. And who might the rock be, by the way? It's person of Jesus and his word. He builds his house on the rock. The storm comes, the rains descend, the flood comes. The wind batters, is the word it uses, batters the exterior of the house, but the house stands. Why? It's built on the Word of God. It's built on what Jesus says. In that immediate context, it would be on the Sermon on the Mount. But anything the Spirit of God says, if we base our lives on that, then we're going to be able to withstand these weather storms which come into our lives. We need to understand that. The foolish person has a house that probably looked very similar. If there had been tract homes at that time in Israel, these houses would have been in the same community, and they would have looked a lot alike, with the exception that the foundation was non-existent, as it were. And the result was this man was in a hurry to get it up. He didn't have the patience to wait and build it the way that would make it stable, and the same storm washed it away the same life another way that we get off the mountain don't continue to walk with the Lord is a wrong focus we get distracted and we know what the Bible says that we are to fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith do you ever get distracted away from the Lord get your eyes on other people or other circumstances, and let those people or the circumstances determine the state of your relationship with Christ. We need to be people who have the right focus if we're going to be people who succeed. One other thing is bad company. And this probably is a corollary to what I said. Sometimes people push you off. But bad company. The Bible says bad company corrupts good morals and then in the book of second peter peter warns in the last part of that little epistle he warns against false teachers and he indicates that they will cause you to fall so we need to be aware of bad influences either moral or doctrinal bad influences we need to understand that we just find ourselves sometimes being slipping Slipping off of our path that we are following, Lord. Just slipping becomes slippery sometimes. We don't have good footing. And the Bible speaks about this too. In Galatians 6, it talks about when a brother is caught in a trespass, a trespass rather, a sin, that we who know the Lord, who are spiritual, and that would simply say we're walking with the Lord. We're continuing to follow the Lord. We're going upward. We're not staying still. You can't stay still in the Christian life, by the way. You'll begin to go back. Backslides, the old way of saying it. But there are people who continue to walk with the Lord, and we know what it's like to have slipped. Anybody here besides me, anybody here besides me who has not slipped? I've slipped. I've slipped a lot in my life. But by the grace of God, he continues to help me up. The Bible says the righteous falls seven times, seven times, but he gets up every time. If we know the Lord, we love the Lord, we're following the Lord, that is what our lives are like. Are you getting an idea of the possible reason that you have fallen to a lower level than you once occupied in your love for Christ? and your love for the brothers and sisters in Christ? We need to repent and return. What does repent mean? First of all, you have to recognize that you've fallen. Secondly, you have to have regret, but regret is not enough. Regret is the prelude to really getting back in sync with the Lord and walking with Him. Because regret properly addressed results in our really having a change of heart. It takes root in our hearts. And we are renewed in our hearts. We need to repent and to return. In the book of Galatians, if you would turn with me there. Galatians chapter 5. I'm not going to comment much on these three verses that we're going to read. Galatians 5 16 through 18. Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit. Some of the translations say, walk in the Spirit but the word translated in or by is the same word in the original language and the context determines the best translation from Greek into English. But I say walk by the Spirit. What would that mean? Walk by the power of the Spirit. Walk in the instruction of the Spirit. Spirit, speak to me. A good way to begin every day would be to say when you open your eyes, Spirit, speak to me today and he's going to speak to you primarily through the Word of God. Probably 99% of what he says to me is through the Word of God. It's all related to the Word of God. It will never be contradictory to the Word of God. But we, we say, Spirit, speak. I say, walk by the power of the Spirit. When Jesus was getting ready to ascend into heaven, he talks to his apostles, and he says this. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest part of the earth, the world. So be, witnesses, he doesn't say we're going to speak witness, although that will be part of it. But he's more interested in our being witnesses, that people will smell the fragrance of Christ in us, And they will be drawn to us in some cases. And even if they aren't drawn, when we begin to build a relationship with them, they will sense there is something unique about us compared to the rest of the people they hang out with. It's that we care about them for them and not for what they can do for us. This is the Christian life as God designed it. The Holy Spirit has been given to us that we might have the power to be witnesses. That we might be men and women who are characterized by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control against which there is no law, the Bible says. When we submit ourselves to Jesus Christ, we ask the Holy Spirit to take control of our lives. This is the kind of life we have. Verse 16, I say, walk by the Spirit. You will not carry out the desire of the flesh. You know what the flesh is. It's your personality apart from the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit. It's when you are a free agent spiritually instead of depending upon the Lord. The bottom line of being a Christian is realizing that what Jesus says is true. Apart from Him, we can do nothing but through him we can do all things he assigns us. It's about that relationship of total dependence. Verse 17, for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. The explanation of why we don't have power over our sinfulness sometimes is there's a war being waged within We know ultimately who will win the war. Well, God, the Spirit will. We know that. But we put up a whale of a fight against the Lord, Lord, don't we? Many times. We resist doing what he says to do. Clearly spelled out. Spirit speak. Spirit does speak. And he tells us exactly who we are and what we're to do. And sometimes we just try to stiff arm him to our own peril, I might add. And look at verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. We've been set free from the law by Jesus. The old covenant required that you keep all the law and hope that you did it well enough to get to go to be with the Lord when you die. We don't have that to deal with because Jesus Christ fulfilled all the law so that when he died, he could pay the price for our sin and we could be free. Free not to do what we want to do. we like to think of the freedom we have in Christ, and we think of it, in most cases, in a distorted way. Thinking it's free for me to do anything I want to without any concern about the repercussions in my life or in the lives of people around me. But what the Lord wants us to do, He wants us to be led by Him, and we will be free indeed. As Jesus says, you shall know the truth. If you abide in my word, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus will set us free, and the Holy Spirit also sets us free. One last verse. Go to 1 Corinthians. You're near there if you have a a Bible book in your hand. It's easy to get there if you have it on your device that you read your Bible from. Let's go to the 13th chapter, the great love chapter. The second verse of 1 Corinthians 13. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. Love for the Lord, yes, but love for each other to the extent that you and I would lay down our lives for each other. Paul says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's what the Spirit is speaking to us today. That we love Jesus in a new way going forward. And that we love each other consequently in an equally new way. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the word of God and we thank You, Holy Spirit, for helping us to understand what is in the Bible. And we want to be men and women. We want to be a church, Lord, that is in step with the Spirit of God. Holy Spirit, we want Your leadership. We know that leadership is only found if we walk by faith and trust in You. So we say, Lord, help us to trust You and Repent of our sin, of preferring other activities or other studies to the love we're to have to you and enjoying your presence and loving each other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless.